0: In Mexico, American guns are a fact of life. Authorities there say nearly 70% of all weapons trafficked into the country come from the U.S. In 2019 alone, those guns were responsible for 17,000 murders. Call it the worst
1: free trade imaginable. Mexican drugs easily flow north. American guns and ammunition easily flow south.
0: There are many links between the neighboring countries trade, culture, and guns. And the U.S.'s patchwork of weak gun laws is one root of Mexico's drug cartel violence. Last year, the Mexican government took an unusual tack to try to stop the flow of arms. They filed a lawsuit. This is Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador.
1: It is not an interventionist act. It is not against the United States government. It is a civil procedure because it affects us that
0: there is no control over the sale of weapons. So, can a lawsuit stem the flow of guns to Mexico? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're updating a story that first ran in August 2021. If you've listened for a while, you might remember we talked to Mexico correspondent John Holman in 2020 about what's come to be known as the Iron River of Guns. So, I wanted to talk to him about this case and what he's seen in Mexico since then. Tell me about this lawsuit. Why did the Mexican government take this step?
2: They're filing a lawsuit against 11 gun manufacturers and some quite famous ones as well amongst them. They've got Colt, they've got Smith & Wesson, they've got quite a lot of big names. And basically what they're saying is that those companies have been negligent in the fact that there's guns that they're selling that are ending up in Mexico.
0: The lawsuit alleges that the companies knew they were contributing to illegal arms trafficking.
2: Mexican officials hope the lawsuit will put a dent in crimes committed by illegal firearms. Actually, like, the Mexican foreign minister, when- even further the negligence. This is actually a lucrative market. The Mexican government seems to be saying that these manufacturers uh, are going after. So that's what they want to stop. They're asking for compensation. They're hoping about $10 billion that will go into the Mexican treasury. But they said that apart from the money, primarily they want these companies to start self-regulating. So it's not just this sort of sea of weapons heading towards Mexico with everyone washing their hands of it.
0: How likely is it that it's going to succeed?
2: That's the big question. And it was asked, actually, we were in the briefing with one of the government's top lawyers from the foreign ministry. And he said that he wasn't certain that it was going to succeed, but basically they were going to give it their best shot. Now, running against it is the fact that in 2005 in the United States, there was a statute that introduced widespread protection against gun companies from lawsuits and legal action from victims of gun violence. California Congressman Adam Schiff calls the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, or PLACA, a deeply destructive bill that protects gun manufacturers from any responsibility for how their products are used, even when they're used to commit a crime. But groups like the National Shooting Sports Foundation say this is just another attempt by Democratic lawmakers to demonize constitutionally protected products. Now, what the Mexican government's hoping is that because they're outside of the United States, then they can still be able to do this because they're not within the United States, and that statute won't protect the gun companies against their legal action. That's sort of their hope, and we have to see how that plays out. So this isn't going to happen overnight. This is going to be quite a long, drawn-out process.
0: As a matter of fact, since this interview happened last year, the 11 American gun manufacturers being sued by the Mexican government have asked the judge in the case to throw out the legal action, saying it violates the First and Second Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. The judge on the case has questioned whether allowing Mexico to sue U.S. gun manufacturers for facilitating the trafficking of weapons to drug cartels would open the door to other countries suing them. Meanwhile, lawyers for the Mexican government responded that the suit does not go against the First Amendment, nor does it question american values and that it's only asking for gun manufacturers to sell and distribute their guns to responsible customers according to the laws in the united states mexico's gun laws are strict in fact there is only one place in the entire country where you can legally purchase a gun and that's in the capital on a base. So you mentioned a sea of weapons. Are there any estimates about how many weapons are being trafficked from the U.S. into Mexico?
2: The foreign ministry said that the government estimates that half a million weapons are coming across from the United States to Mexico every year. And they said that they're causing at least 17,000 homicides, those weapons. They call it an Iron River. That's what they call it that's coming across the border Um, from the United States into Mexico.
0: That Iron River has been the subject of a lot of research and reporting on both sides about where the guns come from and how they get across. This is Eugenio Vigan vargas
1: I'm the Research Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress.
0: That's a think tank based in Washington, D.C.,
1: Throughout my life, I've been living in the United States and Mexico back and forth. But for the last 10 years, I've been uh, living in the United States.
0: And like many people with ties to both countries, Eugenio is used to driving back and forth. He was just in Mexico last week, but he's also observing with the eyes of a researcher.
1: I've done that many times in my life, you know, where I've driven from the United States to Mexico. And the checkpoints are pretty weak. They randomly maybe check a vehicle every 20, 25 vehicles, usually when I drive across the border, I'm never stopped, you know, which makes it very easy to hide maybe 10 or 15 rifles in the back of your car and never get stopped.
0: He's hypothetically speaking, of course, and in Eugenio's line of research, that's tough to watch. It's
1: a bit uh, frustrating not to see that, you know, you know that the problem exists and there's nothing really going on, except, you know, there's a big sign that says trafficking guns to Mexico is illegal, don't do it. But, you know, I'm not sure that that sign has any impact or has uh, incentivized anybody from not trafficking guns to Mexico.
0: So it's pretty well known now that the border controls are weak. But that's not where the story begins. It starts with how the guns get to the border in the first place. And that's part of Eugenio's research.
1: There's a high level of guns within the United States, but there's also a lot of ways in which those guns can easily get diverted.
0: One of them is called straw purchasing.
1: Straw purchasing basically is a person who is legally able to purchase a gun without a problem, but does so on behalf of a third person, usually uh, an individual that is prohibited by law to purchase a gun.
0: Straw purchasers are sometimes caught by police or federal agents. But in the U.S., There's no law making gun trafficking a federal crime. It's usually considered a paperwork violation, not a felony, and rarely means prison time. And this has been a problem for years. This federal agent spoke to Al Jazeera about it back in 2018. —
2: What we could really use is the
1: firearms trafficking statute, because that would allow us to go after not only the straw purchaser, but the entire network of people that are getting these guns to arm the cartel.
0: But straw purchasing isn't actually the easiest way to get a gun. Buying from a dealer requires a background check and a record of a sale, among other things. But for traffickers, there's a way to get around that, and that's private sales, including at gun shows.
2: What's called the gun show loophole. Gun shows have been going on for as long as I can remember. Uh, And I don't think there's anything wrong with them. Uh, It's a good place to get a good deal.
1: Gun shows are gatherings at convention centers, parking lots, even parks, where people just gather around to sell guns, other gun-related accessories, like holsters, stickers. But you also see the AR-15 rifles, the AK-47 displayed on tables. You see some gun dealers there. Federal firearm license dealers must conduct a background check before any gun sale. Those are required by law. Gun dealers at gun shows are required to run background checks on any sales, but in this case, private sellers are not required to run background checks, meaning that anybody that is prohibited by law from purchasing a gun can go to a gun show and get a gun with no questions asked, even a person that intends to traffic that gun or a person that is prohibited by law because it has, for example, a history of domestic violence. As of now, 22 states require some form of background check during private sales. However, In 28 states, this requirement simply does not exist.
0: And that includes two border states, Texas and Arizona. These private sales are a well-known issue in the U.S. gun control debate. But some of Eugenio's visits to gun shows were also focused close to the border.
1: You see all these rifles on display on tables, keeping in mind that they're only about two, three miles from the Mexican border, meaning that anybody can drive to a gun show approach a private sailor and get any type of weapon that they're selling, including an AR-15 rifle. And gun shows happen every weekend across America, so it's it's very easy on any given weekend to acquire a gun.
0: One gun that stood out to Eugenio in his visits was the 50 caliber rifle.
1: It's the largest caliber weapon you can legally buy. A 50 caliber shooting palm-sized bullets that can blast through car doors and bulletproof vests in one deadly pull of a trigger. So the 50 caliber rifle is pretty big. The bullets are like the size of a small bottle of water, in fact.
0: In the U.S., you mostly see it among big gun enthusiasts to take down different targets.
1: You see a lot of people uploading YouTube videos on shooting down trees or shooting old cars, just for fun, for display.
2: I got an email from Hunter here who said he could shoo the watermelon off my head. So we're here with this watermelon, my head, this 50 caliber BMG round and his sniper rifle. We're gonna see how that goes. Oh God. <laughs> In
0: Mexico, a rifle that can take down a target from over a mile away is used a bit differently.
1: Those rifles are, are capable of taking down helicopters. And in fact, it has been the case that criminal groups in Mexico have used bare 15 rifles to take down helicopters. So you find this type of guns at a gun show three miles from the Mexican border. That's the scary part, is that these guns have, are being used in Mexico, not for recreational purposes, but for confrontational purposes.
0: Our correspondent, John, has been following those kinds of confrontations across Mexico. The most famous one was when a cartel outgunned the Mexican army in a city called Culiacán, forcing the army to release the son of the famous cartel leader, El Chapo. But last year, John went to another state that's been a center for violence.
2: The southern Mexican state of Michoacan has become the battleground for a bloody drugs war between two of the major cartels. Criminals in Mexico
0: have used drones to drop explosives on police, injuring two officers in the western state of
2: Michoacan. So what's happening in Michoacán is the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, which is one of the most powerful groups in Mexico, is basically invading into that state, wanting to take over. And there's lots of local criminal groups there that before were fighting among themselves, they've come together to try and repel it. There's a, a sort of full-on low-level turf war that's being conducted almost out in the open. And the government and the authorities there are just sort of bit players at, sometimes just watching it play out.
0: You met with self-defense groups of people who are defending their villages from the cartels. What kind of weaponry did they have in comparison to what you saw from the cartels?
2: We went to one of the biggest the longest-lasting self-defense groups in the area. And the weaponry uh, that they had was pretty impressive, actually. We actually interviewed with one of the leaders of a vigilante group there, which has got an incredible presence. And I said to them, where are you getting your weapons from? He said, well, yeah, we just trafficked them across the border from the United States and then they get them to bring them down here. And they had machine guns, they had AK-47s, everything really that you would expect the cartel to have. And they said that they needed that because if they didn't have that weaponry, how were they going to face off against the cartel?
0: Can you talk to me about some of the people you met  — — In Michoacán, how does the violence impact their lives?
2: — You've got a population that's absolutely shell-shocked, especially in that region in the western part of the state. We talk to people that had to flee their homes, and there's lots of them, in little villages that have just got caught up in the crossfire and just emptied out.
0: — And those who stay face immense challenges. One woman lost her grandfather because she couldn't get him medical help when the cartels blockaded the road to the hospital, and they couldn't get through. — I felt so helpless because we couldn't do anything. It was out of our hands. It was unjust, and that made me really angry. It's awful because this town used to be very peaceful and free. Now we can't leave the children alone. We're always afraid, listening for noises, because at any moment the bullets could start flying. When it comes to addressing the root of this violence back at the U.S. border, both John and Eugenio said that it's clear that there's more to be done on the Mexican side, too.
1: You know, I always cross and I think, you know, we need better technology. I know that the technology is available to, you know, just simply drive a car and detect if it has any kind of firearm or any ammunition residuals. The technology exists. I'm not sure that there's a political will to implement that technology in Mexico.
0: John also thought the inaction was in part a weighing of interests.
2: I think just looking at it logically, there's a lot of commerce, there's a lot of tourism coming into Mexico that depends on a free flow of traffic on that border of people not waiting in lines for a long time while their cars are checked. So I think it's going to be a delicate balance from them. How important is it to stop guns getting in? And is it more important than stopping or or, or holding up a bit that free flow of tourism and commerce?
0: But Eugenio says he's convinced that the U.S. has an important role to play as well.
1: I'm not saying that the Mexican government doesn't have a responsibility. Of course they have a responsibility. And they should certainly address issues of corruption, building better police forces. There are many, many things that they need to do. What I usually tell my Mexican friends is Mexico should not blame everything on the United States. It's a shared responsibility. They should address the things that they can do internally. And the United States should admit its shared responsibility as well, because there is a shared responsibility, not only because of the high demand of drugs that the United States has, but because there's tons of guns that are flowing from the United States into Mexico that is generating violence. And that violence, in fact, is generating migration from Mexico and Central America to the United States. So there's a lot of issues that are intertwined there as well.
0: For Eugenio, the issue is personal from his own time in Mexico.
1: I was a victim myself in 2011. I had a gun pointed at my head. I parked outside my uncle's office. I was going to pick him up. And while he came out, two young people came through my window and pointed a gun at me. The second one was driving the car behind. And he took everything. He took the car. He took the wallet. He took my phone. He took everything I had. And that kind of left me marked. And it was not just me. Also, family members were impacted by gun violence in Mexico. So that was what brought me to this issue.
0: So bringing this back to the lawsuit, what do you think the Mexican government hopes to get out of it? You know, keeping in mind all the stories you was just told and, and what the lay of the land actually looks like. How important do you think that a lawsuit like this could be to the people of Mexico?
2: I think what they're hoping for most is that it works, no, that these gun companies start self-regulating and that it becomes harder for medical criminal groups to be able to get hold of weapons from the US. That's the best case scenario. I think they're also wanting to show with this that they're doing something because Mexican governments have been complaining about this for quite some time. So I think they'll want to show to their population that yes, we are trying to act on this. So even if it doesn't succeed, at least, They're showing that and showing that they've done more than past administrations. We just have to see if it actually works or not.
0: And like Eugenio, John also saw that the story about the flow of guns in Mexico is also a story about the flow of people.
2: After a month there and and a few reporting trips, I think the biggest takeaway from me were the people that we met in the state and outside of the state that can't go home. And we met a lot of people that don't have that possibility. So many people have had to flee. We talked to one family that had to go all the way to the border, the only family that agreed to go on camera. And it was three generations, four generations of a family that had had to leave. They left in the dead of night and they left with nothing. They played us the phone conversation where one of their neighbors was saying, basically, if the daughter of the matriarch of that family doesn't get involved with us, then we're going to kill you. wow.
0: Oh. Oh. They kidnapped my daughter for three days. They wanted her to sell drugs. They warned her that if she didn't do what they said, they'd kill all of us. I started to tremble. I said to my son, let's go. They're coming to put a bullet in my head. We didn't grab anything except documents,
2: and we left fast. There was, I think, uh, five or six of them leaving in a very small tent, and they were just waiting to see if they get asylum. And they said they were happier right now because even though they were basically on the streets, at least they weren't in that dangerous position that they were in back in Michoacan. And I just felt, in my own case, just imagining if I'd had to do that, if from one day to the next, everything that I owned, everything that I built up over time, I just had to flee because of things outside of my control two criminal groups fighting each other and I was sort of stuck in the middle that sense of helplessness and also that sense of what's going to happen to your life after that and it just can't imagine the constant pressure of it month on month year on year so that sense of powerlessness for the people there i think was something that really really struck home to me and made me think
0: and that's the take to hear more of John's reporting on U.S. gun trafficking in Mexico, check out our episode from 2020. The link is in our episode description. This episode was updated by Nay Alvarez. The original production team was Alexandra Locke, Ngeen Oliay, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilvey, Tom Finton, Stacey Samuel, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya el and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. We'll be back.